Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're in Matthew chapter 8 tonight for our Bible study. We are going to fly over chapter 8 all the way up through verse 9 of chapter 9, but we're not going to read every verse, the text that gives us Our theme for this segment of scripture is between verses 5 and verse 13 of chapter 8. Everything will pull from there, um, just so you know where we're going. So why don't we open our Bibles. Let's read from Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 through verse 13, and then we'll get into our study tonight. It says this. It says that when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, a Roman soldier, usually in charge of a hundred men, a sent being over a hundred. And he was beseeching Jesus, and he said, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered, and he said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority having soldiers under me, probably a hundred. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled, one of only a handful of times that we read of Jesus marveling at somebody's words towards him. And he said to them that followed, so he turns around and he faces those that are behind him, And he commends this man. He says, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. This man not an Israelite. This man a Roman. And Jesus commends him above all his own countrymen. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus turns back to the centurion who's standing in front of him. And he says to him, he says, go your way. And as you have believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed from the self same hour. Now, I want to remind you that Matthew is writing to a very specific audience. Now, we know he was inspired by the Spirit of God, and thus the, 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 the writing is to all people. But in Matthew's heart and mind, he is seeking to reach the Jew. That is his intended audience. And, and thus, he writes his gospel in a way and with a theme that will resonate with Jewish people. And so one of the themes, the major themes in Matthew's gospel is the authority that Jesus has. If you recall, the, last week we, we studied the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount closes with Matthew's commentary. It's verse 28 and 29 of chapter 7. You could just look up with your eyes in your Bible. It says that it came to pass that when Jesus ended these sayings, the sermon that the people were astonished at his doctrine or his teaching, and here's why. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. 
Meaning that when Jesus spoke, there was something in his words that resonated on a deeper level than just like the intellectual things that they were so used to hearing week after week in the synagogues and in the studies that they were, uh, you know, subject to. And, and this was a big deal for them. Authority was huge. Mental authority, physical authority, spiritual authority, political authority. They were a people that were moved by power. They understood it. And so Matthew makes this a theme. It comes up over and over and over again all throughout Matthew's gospel and he does that because he knows that that's going to be a key for getting their attention concerning Jesus, his authority. Now, the people recognized that Jesus had what we've been calling smika. It's that Hebrew word that means spiritual authority from God. And thus far, hearing the Sermon on the Mount, they acknowledge that Jesus has teaching authority. That he has the ability to comprehend the word and the truth of God and then to speak it forth in such a way that it carries the authority of God. That he has that oratory power and they recognize that and they acknowledge it. But that's only one part of life. There are many people that have authority when they can speak or when they speak. But then when it comes to the rest of their life, that authority diminishes or is non-existent. And so what Matthew does now, having established that, yes, there's authority in his words, he launches into, in these next chapters, a series of seven miracles that are designed to illustrate or demonstrate the authority that Jesus had, not just with his words, but in other areas of his life as well. And that's important to understand. This is Jesus' authority that's being shown to us here. Now, there is something in the human condition, and it it affects all of us. And that is that we naturally resist authority. There's something inside of us that we just don't want to be ruled over. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be subject to someone else or subject to someone else's rules. We don't want to be moved by someone else's will for our lives. That's just a part of human nature. It's fallen human nature, but it is a reality. It's something that we are. It's been like that since the fall of man, since the Garden of Eden. That's why we frustrated our parents and it's why our kids frustrate us because we just don't want to be there they'll i I noticed this my kids will gladly sit at my table and eat my food but they don't want to hear my teaching and hear what i have to say or what i want to speak into their life and i understand that i get it it's the same way that i was when i was them now matthew is trying to reach a people For the intent that they might bring themselves under the authority and into submission to Jesus. And in order to do that, he's seeking to establish the level of and the kind of authority that Jesus has. So that they know what it is that they're giving themselves to should they listen to it. And so Matthew gives seven miracles in this next passage portion of scripture in order to show Jesus authority. To illustrate it, to let them understand it and see it for all that it is. Now, when I say the word miracle, I think we all understand that a miracle is something that is done that doesn't 
bend scientific or natural law, but it actually breaks scientific or natural law. Because we can bend scientific law and, and, and kind of make it look like it's being broken, right? Like you've ever seen a fountain before? You could put a fountain and, and charge it up with electricity and it can cause water to flow upwards. And you could say, well, that's a miracle. And it looks like a miracle because water doesn't flow upwards. But it's really not a miracle. You're bending natural law using another force. Every time we see an airplane, an airplane bends natural law to do something that seems miraculous. You know, you get a several ton piece of steel flying through the air at Mach 9. You know, it looks like a miracle. It's not a miracle. You're bending the laws of science and, and nature. But a miracle is different. A miracle means that those laws have actually been broken. And that's a fascinating thing when you start to think about it. Because when, when we talk about like natural law or scientific law, the word law, it, it, it implies a legal, firm, absolute truth, right? It's a law. Gravity is a law, okay? So we are all subject to or under the authority of natural law, whether we like it or not. And we understand that. That's why some people don't like to fly in airplanes. Because they know that at the end of the day, even though that law is being bent, should the force that's bending that law fail, you die. Because natural law wins. We are under natural law. Some people are afraid of water. They don't like to swim. They don't like to go out on boats. I don't personally like to be on a boat where I can't see land. Okay, I, I'm not afraid of it. I would go on a cruise. It's not like the, the thing, but I don't like it. I'm not comfortable there because I know that rock, paper, scissors, man, water, water wins. Okay, I can't, I'm going to die because that's natural law. And whether I like it or not, I am under the authority of natural law. Now, when a miracle happens, natural law is broken. And that's why we are drawn to the miraculous. That's why we're impressed by the miraculous. Because we're under it, we're subject to it, and so when someone does a miracle, or when a miracle happens, it gets our attention, because innately we understand that, wow, there's a power and a force here that's defying an authority that seems to be a given and an absolute. And so when Jesus does a miracle, Jesus isn't bending natural law, he's breaking it. And that's an amazingly remarkable thing that's going on. Now, one more thing about this whole concept of miracles is that oftentimes in the Bible, when you read about a miracle, it interchanges the words miracle and sign. Like they come to Jesus and they say, show us a sign. And he understands they're asking for a miracle. Sometimes it says that he did many signs and wonders among them. Sign and miracle are, are interchangeable. And that's intentional and on purpose. And here's why. Because when God does a miracle, breaking natural law, he's doing it as a sign. And what is a sign? A sign is something that is communicating a message. That's what a sign does. When you're driving down the highway and you see a sign, they're trying to tell you something. And so when God does a miracle, he's not simply showing off and saying, look what I can do. 
But each miracle that he does has a message. There's something in it that he's trying to communicate, convey, and to say to us. And he's using the miracle as the means to convey the message. And so in this passage of scripture, there are seven miracles... But there's one message. All seven miracles convey the same message. And so the title of tonight's study is Sign Language. Because God is going to use seven signs to speak. He's going to give a message in it. Now, I'm not going to read through all of these miracles. You'll have to go through and you can read it on your own. I will read some parts of it, but I will tell you what took place. And I'm doing that simply for the sake of time so that I can use uh, the, the time in the most effective way that's possible. But the first miracle that Jesus does that Matthew records is in the first four verses of chapter 8. And it concerns a man who had a disease that was scientifically incurable. That means that under the laws of nature and science, there was no hope for this man. He had a disease called leprosy. It was an incurable, painful, fatal, flesh-eating disease that was systemic. It wasn't a surface disease. It started on the inside, and it worked its way to the outside. Leprosy was highly contagious... And if you were diagnosed with leprosy, then there was no hope for your long-term survival. If you had leprosy, you were considered unclean. You lived out your life in isolation because you couldn't come in contact with someone who was non-leprous. And you lived a slow and painful death. There's only two instances in the Bible where leprosy was cleansed. It has to be cleansed, not necessarily cured, because it's something that happens on the inside. It was Miriam, the sister of Moses, who was healed miraculously by God, and Naaman, a Syrian soldier in the days of Elisha, who was also healed of leprosy. But in both instances, it was miraculous because it was incurable. And in our text, a leprous man comes to Jesus... And he professes to him, he says, if you're willing, I know that you have the power or the authority to make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing, be thou clean. And the man is immediately, supernaturally, miraculously cleansed of his leprosy. And then Jesus caps it off by saying this. Now, here's what you're to do. He says, go and show yourself to the high priest for a testimony to them and offer to them the the offering that Moses said that had to be offered at this time. In other words, Jesus saying to them that there's a message in this miracle and I want you to go and convey the message to the religious rulers by offering, by letting them see your cleansing and letting them see the whole thing. Now, now we don't have leprosy, right, in, in our world. I mean, there's Hansen's disease, which is kind of like, like it, but leprosy is kind of one of those things that we don't really wrestle with. But there are things that are incurable. And that's the first word, if you're taking notes uh, tonight in, in your, in your uh, notebook or in your Bible, is, is Jesus is about to do something in a situation where there's an incurable disease. And, and there are things that are incurable. There are cancers that we 
have to deal with and wrestle with that are technically, scientifically, naturally considered incurable. Science has no answer to it. There are mental illnesses that they will say, well, we can treat this. There's some things we can do to help, but this is an incurable condition that you have. There are certain addictions that people can have, and and science and nature will say, well, this is an incurable condition that you have. You can recover, you can survive, you can stay clean, but you can't ever be cured. It's something that's in you, it's incurable. And the whole idea is that science has no answer for it, and so therefore, you are under the authority of that incurable situation because there's nothing anyone can do about it. Now, Jesus cleanses this leper and he says, go show yourselves to the priest for a testimony unto them. You say, what is the message that Jesus is seeking to convey by the cleansing of this leper? Here it is. It's that the one who has authority over what's incurable is here. Henceforth, everyone has been under the authority of what's incurable, but there is one who is over what's incurable, and he has authority to cleanse it. The second miracle in in the passage is in verses 5 through 13. It's the text that we read, and it concerns the healing of a man whose recovery is not necessarily impossible, not incurable, but it is improbable. It probably isn't going to happen. It, of course, deals with the centurion's servant who it says that he has a palsy. It's kind of a generic term that's used frequently throughout the Bible, but it really just means a paralyzing, that there is something that has happened to him. He wasn't born with it. He wouldn't have been able to be the guy's servant had he been born with it, but something happened to him along the way. He probably got some kind of an infection, and the infection resulted in a palsy. There was a paralyzing. I remember uh, just the last June, I got Lyme disease, and I got this Bell's palsy. You know, So I got an infection from a tick, and I lost the use of half my face. And I see some of you snickering now because you had to watch me teach for three weeks without the use of half of my face. There was this paralyzing. And here's the idea behind the palsy, is that it's something that you used to have But now you no longer have it. It has become paralyzed, something in your life. Um, Now, I don't know if any of you can maybe relate to that. I've never had, other than the Bell's palsy, a debilitating palsy like the man. But I have a lot of things in my life that I understand I used to have it. Now it's gone. It's kind of paralyzed, right? So, for instance, I have experienced memory palsy. Have you had that? I used to be able to remember things. I used to be able to quote large passages of scripture. They just come, gone, you know, memory palsy. How about pectoral palsy? You know, it used to be glorious, you know, and now maybe not so much. How about parental palsy? I used to be a really good parent. Like when my kids were three, four, and five, you should have seen how good I was as a parent. Now that they're 18, 16, and 14, and there's two other ones that are younger, I'm like, what happened? You know, it's paralyzed. My parental skills are gone, you know. I used to have compassion. Now I have compassion palsy, you know, where I can barely stand it if someone else has a problem, you know, just deal with it and fix it and move on with your life, you know. (laughs) Some of us understand marital palsy. 
Anybody with marital palsy in here? The marriage used to be good. I remember the day we said, I do. Things were so good, you know. But ever since then, it's like it's palsied. The relationship, I'm not sure if it can stand up anymore. I'm grievously tormented in the whole thing. <laughs> there's, there's relational palsy. I used to know how to interact with people. Now I have to refrain myself, you know. There's all kinds of things that we can relate to and understand, you know. We used to have it. I no longer do. This thing is palsy. Now listen, the healing of the palsy and the healing of palsies is not necessarily an incurable thing. Sometimes time, treatment, you can recover and you can be fully cured and you are no longer affected. So it isn't that what Jesus does here is necessarily impossible, but it is or can be improbable. Now, have you ever had a situation in your life where you know that God can fix it, you're just not sure if he's willing to fix it. That's, my issue isn't that I, that I don't believe that he can. My issue is that I'm not sure if he will. You know, and, and, and that is a thing that we ask ourselves. Now, I want you to recognize this. In the text that we read, this man comes to Jesus, and he says to him, not only I know you can heal if you're willing, but I'm so sure that you have the power to do it that you don't even have to come to my house and touch the guy you can do it wi-fi you speak the word i know that you have power to do it he recognizes jesus authority he believes in it he makes a profession a declaration of it and jesus commends him for his optimism and calls it faith He says, I know that you can do this. And Jesus says, I haven't seen such faith. No, not in Israel. And then Jesus says these words. It's chapter 8, verse 13. And I want you to listen to them. See them. I hope they go up on the screen. If they don't, it's my fault, not theirs. He says, as you have believed, so be it done unto you. As you have believed... So be it done unto you. I wonder how often Jesus says this over the things that come out of our mouths and go through our minds. As you have believed, so be it done unto you. I think one of the problems that we have, even as Christians, is that we quickly submit ourselves to the laws of probability. You guys know what I'm talking about, is that if something is improbable, then we automatically assume that that's what's going to happen. If I'm not married by the time I'm 30, then the odds are I'm going to have a lot harder of a time finding a mate. The odds are if I'm not pregnant by the time that I'm 40, then my chances of conception are almost nothing at all. I'm probably not going to have a baby. The odds are that only 2% of people that are involved in any trade or sport or field are actually going to make it to a level that's considered professional. Less than 2%. The odds are I'm not going to make it. The odds are, and I actually looked this up, that if I'm not satisfied with my life, at least to some degree, by the time I'm 23 then I'm probably not going to ever make it to the level of satisfaction that I'm going to call sufficient. 
I'm probably not. And, and we have this condition where we submit ourselves to the laws of probability. Well, that's going to happen to me. It happened to them. It's probably going to happen to me. I want you to think about something here. What is the probability right now, okay, first of all, that this man is going to be healed of his palsy? I mean, when you put it up and stack it up against all the other people that are sick, that's a very low probability that he's actually going to be healed miraculously by Jesus. Let's add to that. What's the probability that Jesus is going to care about a Roman centurion? He's not an Israelite. He's actually an aggressor to the Israelite cause, and he's hated by most of the people in Israel. And now here's this Jewish savior prophet, and and what are the chances that he's going to regard the request of a Roman centurion? Not only that, is that the request and ask isn't even for the soldier himself, but rather for his servant. So what are the chances that a Jewish prophet is going to care about the servant of a centurion who's sick in a way that most people just get sick of and they just run it, of course, and who cares? See, the probability is very, very small that God is going to do anything, that Jesus is going to do anything for this man. But here's what we see happen. As we see that Jesus not only was unbound by the laws of probability, but he was also willing to help this man and, catch this, he was willing to do even more than what the man asked for. Because Jesus said, I'll come. And the man said, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking you. I don't even want you to come that, do that. I just want you to say it. You just say it, and I know it's going to work. But yet we see Jesus was willing to go beyond even what this man was actually asking for. And then I challenge myself, and I say, you know, why am I so pessimistic Why am I so quick to put myself under the laws of probability when I serve a Savior who not only shows himself to be over it, but shows himself to be willing to work wonderfully on my behalf? Do you know what the sign, do you know what the message is? Do you know what the language of Jesus is in performing this miracle the way that he did and saying what he did? Is he's conveying this. He's saying that the one who has authority over what's improbable is here. I have authority over those laws. The third sign, the third miracle that happens concerns a woman who has a sickness that's not incurable and it's not even improbable. It's just inconvenient. That's it. It's Peter's wife's mother and she just has a fever. People get fevers. There's probably people in this room right now that have a fever, especially this time of year. It is it is extremely common thing to have a fever. Now, it's Peter's mother-in-law. She's the one that has this. Now, I know that right now it is wide open, right, for a joke, a mother-in-law joke, the whole thing. And, 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 I, and I might sink to that level, but I like my mother-in-law. I actually like her, you know, so there's no room for that uh, in this. But I can tell you this. I hate inconvenience. I hate interruptions. I hate being sick. I know that's news to some of you because you were thinking like, he must love being sick, you know. No, I don't. I don't like being sick. What I hate even more than being sick is I hate when my wife is sick. (laughs) It is infinitely harder in, in the world when my wife is sick than when I'm sick, you know. But I hate I hate interruptions. I find that fevers come in many fashions. I have I have experienced in my household car fever. 
Anybody here ever have car fever? You know, you unexpectedly go down and you realize that your car has a fever and it says, I'm not going out today. And you say, I need you to go out today. And the car says, I'm not going to do it. I have also experienced house fever. And when my fever has a house, I'm sorry, my house has a fever. I've got to laugh out of you somehow, you know. When my house has a fever, usually it involves water being someplace it's not supposed to be. It's coming through sheetrock, it's dripping from a ceiling, it's a pipe that's exploded and a waterfall coming out of my basement. You know, there, there's some water issue. My house has had a fever before. Now, Jesus in the text, he could have prevented the fever from happening all at once. He didn't do that. He didn't prevent the inconvenience. He didn't prevent the interruption He allowed that to happen. God allowed it to happen. But what Jesus did do in his authority is he fixed the problem. Jesus entered into the situation and he brought a swift and gracious end to something that probably would have been much worse or taken much longer. And he showed himself to be one who has authority over that which is inconvenient. And I can tell you that I have experienced Jesus' authority over inconvenience in my life probably more than any other thing. And the way that he will provide either wisdom or resources or a solution or something to help. It happened, but he provides help. There was a a time... I think this was early last year, probably about a year ago, um, that, that, that my son needed something and I needed to go in the basement to get it. And it was kind of like quick and on a whim. And I go into the room where it is, which is where the well comes into the house and you get the, the, the expansion tank and all this stuff. And the expansion tank had exploded. And water was just gushing all over the room. I mean, literally standing water on the floor. And I'm going like, it was Sunday night at 9 o'clock. Okay, what do you do... When you need an expansion tank on Sunday night at nine o'clock, you know, and I'm going, oh my goodness, like we're going to be without water. Like this is the worst possible thing in the worst possible time, you know? So I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about it and I'm like, okay, I know some plumbers. I know some people. Maybe somebody will have an expansion tank, maybe like in a truck or an extra or something. So I make a few phone calls. I call Bobby O'Neill. He's here tonight. He works for the Hyde Park Water Authority. And I, and I tell, I say, Bobby, I need an expansion tank. Do you know anything? He's like, well, let me check around. He's like, you're out of your mind. He's like, but I'll call you back. Right. So he called me back like 15 minutes later and he says, all right, he says, go to Hyde Park and he gives me an address. He says, go to this address. And he says, just, you'll get to the thing, turn down the driveway. He goes, just drive back all the way back down there. And he goes, just trust me. I'm like, all right. So I get Rocky, we get in the the truck and we go and we drive to Hyde Park, pull in this thing. I'm driving down this dirt driveway into the middle of the woods. It's completely dark. There's nothing on. There's no sign of human life. And as I come to the end, the top of this driveway, right there in the middle of this dirt path, under the beam of my headlights, is an expansion tank. Brand new, sitting in a box. No people anywhere. It was like, this is the shadiest thing I have ever been a part of in my entire life. There's no one to pay. There's no one to ask questions about. It's just sitting there right in the middle of the path. So I'm like... All right, you know, so I take it, I, I go home and the whole thing. I didn't even get a bill for the expansion tank for like three months. And then when I did, it was like way less than what it would have cost even at Home Depot, you know. But my point is this, is that there have been so many times that Jesus, he didn't prevent the inconvenience. It happened, but he helped in the middle of it. 
And by Jesus just healing this fever, he's showing that he is over. He's got authority over the interruptions and the things that frustrate us. That took too long to go through that point, but it was worth it. (laughs) The fourth sign, don't clap, don't clap. The fourth sign, the fourth sign that we see uh, in this uh, segment uh, concerns something that is just indescribable. And it's in verse 16 of chapter 8. And it says there, if you look at the text, it says that when the evening was come, it says they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and he healed all that were sick. And that's kind of the end of it. It just says that he cast out demons and spirits, and he healed all those that were sick. Have you ever, have you ever noticed, sometimes you read the Bible, right? And doesn't it seem like in Bible times that you might accidentally just trip on a demon if you're not looking where you're going. Because doesn't it kind of seem like there's demons everywhere when you're reading? Like you're like, all of a sudden, oh, there's another demon. You know, but yet, like, I go out and I'll go like a year and I'll see a demon, right? And and like, you kind of wonder, like, what happened to all the demons? Because it seems like, you know, when Jesus was here, they were everywhere, but I don't, I mean, sometimes, I'm not going to go there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, but but doesn't it, it kind of seems like that? Now I, I say that to say this is that because in that culture in that time, anything that was undefinable or indescribable, they blamed it on a demon. It was a demon. They didn't have like what we do in our society. We have labels for everything, and so like a lot of times, you know, they would say he has a demon. We would say he has a label. You know, so he's, he's got depression or he's got, and I'm not saying that everyone who's depressed has a demon, but I'm just saying that there's labels. Uh, He's bipolar. He's OCD. He's manic. He's psychotic. He's cray. That's the new one, right? That he's just cray. You know, that's really bad if you got that, you know, but, but the whole idea is, is now we are spiritual beings and we live in a spiritual realm, but it is impossible for me in my finiteness, to understand where the line is between that which is just something that's mental and something that's spiritually demonic that's going on inside. It's indefinable for me. It's indescribable. And here it just says that there were many that had spirits, they had demons, they had various sicknesses, and it says that Jesus just cast them out with his word. And so Jesus cuts through all of the things that we can't define, and he shows himself to have authority over that which is indescribable. And that gives me amazing comfort to realize that sometimes when I can't even formulate words to articulate to God in prayer what's going on in my life, that he can see it and he can dominate it and he can give victory over it even if I can't explain it and I don't understand it. Because he has authority over that which is indescribable. That's the message behind the miracle. The fifth miracle concerns something that's inevitable and we see it in the text in verses 23 through 27 of chapter 8 and it concerns a storm that the disciples went through when Jesus had them get into the ship to cross over to the other side and I find this remarkable because Jesus said to them let's go over to the other side And then he got in the boat with them, meaning that he was leading them directly into a storm. Then Jesus goes into the back of the boat, curls up with a pillow, and he falls asleep. So he led them into a storm. Then he withdrew the awareness of his presence 
And he fell asleep in the back of the boat and he let them think and believe that they were going through the storm by themselves. And so the storm comes. The other gospels tell us that they were actually in danger, that there was peril because of it. And they got 50% on the test. They had two questions. They got one right and one wrong. The first thing they did is they came to Jesus. They got that one right. Lord, they woke him up. The second thing they got wrong. They said, Lord, we're going to die. That was wrong. They came to him. That was right. They had no hope. That was wrong. You know, they come to Jesus. Jesus stands up. He goes, uh, wind, stop blowing. Waves, stop crashing. And automatically, there's an immediate calm. And they're standing there, dripping wet, in half, you know, masked water in the ship, standing there, marveling. It says that they marveled and they looked at Jesus. And they said, who is this that has power over even the weather? He has authority over the weather. Listen, here's the reality is that you and I are going to go through storms in our life, and they are God-ordained storms. There's going to be times when he is going to say, get in the boat, we're going somewhere. We're going to get in, and it's going to get so tumultuous that we're going to think that we're not going to make it, that we're going to die. And Jesus is somewhere in the background, and we're wondering, Lord, you told me, but where in the world are you? The reason why God does that is because in his mind, he wants to do something that's going to help you understand that he, that he is even bigger than you thought. See, if there had been no storm, they would have never seen that he was over even the elements. It was the storm that facilitated the understanding that he was bigger. The message behind the miracle is that Jesus has authority even over those inevitable storms that we are going to face within our lives. The sixth miracle, I'm not going to expound too much on it, but it deals with something that we'll call inconceivable, if you're taking notes. It's the next passage, it's verse 28 all the way through the end of the chapter, and it concerns this demoniac. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us there was two of them, and that they had a legion of demons, that they were bound with chains and fetters, And that there was no one that could solve the problem of these two and and what they were causing, the havoc that they were causing. And Jesus comes in. He engages in conversation with the demonic force. He casts the demon into a herd of swine. The swine run violently off a cliff and drown themselves in the midst of the sea. And the man, or the men in this case, that were demon-possessed, are left seated in their right mind completely cured and completely delivered from this demon possession. And the message behind the miracle, the message behind what Jesus did there, is that the one who has authority over what is inconceivable of the natural mind, a force of evil that is so dark that man has no solution for it, not even chains, but Jesus has authority over it. And then the seventh and the final that we'll look at tonight concerns a situation that is truly impossible it's truly impossible it's different than all the others that we have seen thus far and it's in chapter 9 verses 1 through 8 and it concerns another man who is sick and i want you to notice this in verse 2 it says that behold they brought to him that is to jesus a man that was sick of the palsy who was lying on a bed 
And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, your sins be forgiven you. Now Matthew leaves out what the other gospel writers put in, which is this is the time when they opened up the roof. You guys probably know the story. The house was so full of people that nobody could get in. And so these four guys hoist up their sick friend on the roof in his bed. They break through and lower him through the ceiling down in front of the place where Jesus was. And when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus makes this declaration. And listen to it again. It's in verse 3. He said, man, thy sins be forgiven you. Now I imagine at first hearing of this the friends probably thought well that's not why we brought him (laughs) you know (laughs) that's a real easy thing to say but that's not our intent we didn't bring him here because he's struggling with cigarettes or something you know there's a greater issue thing going on right here but i want you to think about what jesus just said he said man your sins be forgiven you now that's absolutely huge that's absolutely revolutionary even the people that heard him that understood what he said commented on it notice what it says in verse 3 it says that behold certain of the scribes said within themselves this man is blaspheming and jesus knowing their thoughts said what do you think why do you think evil in your hearts for what's easier to say your sins be forgiven or to say arise and walk they would obviously say well it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven but their accusation to him was that listen you can't do that See, by saying your sins are forgiven you, this has nothing to do with natural law, physical law, an infirmity, a sickness. No, 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 no. This isn't miraculous because because you're talking about forgiving sin. And that's a different law. That's not natural law. That's God's law. And if you think that you can violate or break God's law, which is that the soul that sins shall surely die, and that you can just forgive sins with your word, well, that would mean that you would have to have authority on a level that's even higher than that which is within the earth. You would have to have authority on a level that's equal to God in order to bend God's law like that. But watch what Jesus does next. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power. That's authority. Esousia in the Greek, it's authority. That you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up your bed, and go into your house. And he arose and departed to his house, but when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such authority unto men they got the message and the message was that the one who has authority even to forgive sin to do what is absolutely impossible is here and then the passage ends in verse 9 that it says that as jesus passed forth from there he saw a man named matthew sitting at the receipt of custom and he said unto him follow me And he arose and followed him. It ends with a call. Jesus calls a man named Matthew who was a tax collector. He was a Jew, but he was working on behalf of Rome. And he calls him to come under the authority that has now been spoken and demonstrated. 
in seven different ways up to this point. You say, why did Jesus call Matthew, and why is Matthew's calling recorded other than the fact that he's the author? Why is this recorded here in this way? Here's why. Because Matthew's status was incurable. He would be rejected because he was working for Rome. His acceptance was improbable. Why would God accept me, one who is working on behalf of his people's enemy? The hope that Jesus would actually love him, that was inconceivable. Why would Jesus love me? I'm not worthy of his love. And Matthew's restoration would be impossible. How, How could that happen, that you would restore someone like me? And I believe it's here intentionally because... That is the very call, the call that Jesus gave to Matthew, that Jesus gives to each one of us. He says, come, follow me. Here's the call. The call is that Jesus is saying, I am calling you to be under my authority. And I want to tell you why that matters and why that's huge and such a big deal. Because at the beginning of our study tonight, when we read about the centurion who came to Jesus in faith... He said to Jesus, he said, I am a man under authority. I understand how this works. I have people under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to this one, come, and he comes. And they do what I say, not because of who I am as a person, but because of who I am as a centurion. Because I am under the authority of Rome... I have authority with those that are under me. And I am acknowledging, Jesus, that you are under a higher authority, not just than Rome, or not even just than man. But you're under an authority that supersedes human government and natural law, and that if you just speak the word, I know my servant will be healed because you are under God's authority. And being under God's authority, that affords you a power that human limitations cannot touch. See, authority, and this goes for you and I, our authority is determined by our submission. And we can only possess authority according to the limitations of what we're under. So here's the point, is that if you reject the call to follow Jesus, I don't want to be under his authority then by default, you're subject to the conditions of a fallen world, human limitations, and natural law. And that means that if you come into a situation in your life that's incurable, improbable, inconvenient, indefinable, inconceivable, inevitable, or impossible, then that's the end. That's your hope. There is no hope because you are subject to natural law. So to be free from Jesus is to be bound by the hostile forces that are stronger than you in this world. Your fallen nature, the world, the government, whatever it might be. And this is why this man, the centurion's faith, was so commended. Because this man realized that to be under Jesus' authority, it means that none of those other things matter. To be under Jesus' authority means that you experience a level of greater freedom than should you not be under his authority. To be under his authority is to have him over your infirmity. Do you understand that? Is that if you're under him, you're subject to his power. And this is a game changer. Authority is determined by submission. There are some people that I've spoken to in the past couple of weeks that are frustrated because of where they are in life. 
one gentleman said, man, I'm in my middle 30s and I feel like I'm in the same place that I was at in my upper 20s, which was the same place that I was at in my early 20s. And I'm frustrated with my life. And I said to him, I said, listen, well, I've got news for you. You're probably in for some more frustration if you keep going the way that you're going. Because if you keep doing what you've always been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've always been getting. And if you don't come to the place where you're willing to submit to Jesus and say yes to him, then you are subject to everything that happens to you because there's no authority in your life to be rising up over it. You're stuck right where you are. You're under the authority of a fallen world. And so Jesus calls us to be under his authority. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said this. He says, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Go ye, therefore. He's calling us to be under his authority, but then we possess his authority as we go and we walk in his name. And once we're under his authority, we're no longer bound by the others. Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says it this way. He says, whosoever you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, whether to sin, of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If we seek to be under just natural law, I don't want Jesus ruling over me. I don't want anybody ruling over me. I'm my own person. Then you are under natural law, natural circumstance. You are under all, you, you, there's no escaping it. Gravity, water, you're dead. But to be under Jesus is to be under his authority. There are some that are here tonight and you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You have believed him for the impossible. You know that you can't save yourself. You know you couldn't save yourself. But you're not living under his authority. You're living as unto yourself. You're living apart from his. You're believing yourself to be subject to natural law. You're living in pessimism. You're living in despair. You're living in, I'm subject to, there's nothing I can do. This is what it is. You're believing yourself to be, but even more, you're behaving yourself as a subject to the things of this world. See, when we say that we trust Jesus, but yet we continue to try to control everything in our lives, we're behaving according to a subjection to a worldly authority. When we say that we believe, we believe him. I believe him. I'm his. I belong to him. But yet we complain and we're pessimistic and we expect the worst and we're prayerless. Then we're not behaving like we believe or that we're under his authority. When we say that he's my strength, but yet we still lean on people for their approval or for their help. We're living under the authority of something else. We're saying we believe it, but we're not really believing it. Here's what you need to know is that Jesus is willing to put you under and in his authority in every area of your life. He was willing with the leper. He was willing with the centurion. He was willing with Peter's wife. He was willing in the storm. And the greatest willing is that he was willing to forgive the man's sins. And that really is the main obstacle that stands between us and God. See, once the sin issue is removed, there's nothing keeping us from experiencing all of what he is. When Jesus Christ, this was the greatest sign language of all, was the cross. When Jesus laid his life down on the cross, he was the righteous one becoming our unrighteousness so that we could receive of him. He made a way for you and I to be saved 
so that we could live and follow under him. And to live and follow under him is true freedom. Calvary's cross. And tonight, just like Jesus called Matthew and he said, come, follow me. And Matthew, his whole life, sitting there knowing everything that he was giving up, everything that he was leaving, and somehow inside knowing what it was that he was giving himself to, to be infinitely greater, he was willing to acknowledge it. There's some here tonight that you know you're saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he saves you. But you're not living in that authority because you're not believing it. You're not walking in it. He calls you to completely trust him. There's some maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. You say, no, I don't want Jesus. I don't want to, I don't want to be bound by anything. I don't want to be bound by anything. To be bound by Jesus is to experience a greater freedom because it allows him to work in our lives to do things that we can't do for ourselves. The impossible, the improbable, the incurable, the inconvenient. We open ourselves to his power. He says, look, I've got all authority, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we, as we receive the truth of what you've revealed in your word. And Lord, we want, like the centurion, to have the faith to believe that to be in you is to possess of you. And so we ask tonight, Lord, that in the areas of our life where our faith is palsied or crippled or diminished or even forsaken, Lord, that you would strengthen it and raise it back to life again. That you would give us such a knowledge deep in our heart of your great power and love and goodwill for us that we would willingly believe you for everything in our lives, not just some things. So help us, Lord. Speak to us tonight, Father. Stir up faith in us, Lord, in the areas that we need it. And I pray tonight, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you personally, that even now, your still small voice would whisper at the door of their heart, follow me. I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with cords of loving kindness. My will for your life is good. I want to forgive you of your sins. I want to lead you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. I want to open to you the doors of salvation. I want to make you a citizen of my kingdom. I want to heal you from the inside and complete you. I want to breathe my life into you. Would you let me in? Would you follow me? And if you can hear the still small voice, not speaking from the outside, but from the inside, and you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight and say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I believe in you. Would you just acknowledge it right where you're seated by the raising of your hand? Matthew stood up. He got up. He said, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to follow you. Is there anyone here tonight that you want to know Jesus personally, that you need to be saved? 
Is there anyone here tonight that you know you need to surrender? You say, Jesus, I'm not trusting you. I'm submitting to the laws of probability. I'm a big, fat pessimist, Lord. Forgive me. Father, we just ask that you would see the condition of every life, that you do what's necessary, what's good and needful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.